You're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Nothing can get a room full of doctors more worked up than talking about our pharmaceutical industry relationships. The marketing of medications to physicians by the drug companies has been increasing as measured by dollars spent and by the variety of methods used to influence physicians. What is marketing? What is education? Does accepting a pen from a drug company really compromise our objectivity? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Michael Gibson. Dr. Gibson is Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Director of Psychiatry Residency Education at University of Michigan and an attending psychiatrist on the University of Michigan Medical Center Adult Inpatient Unit. Welcome, Dr. Gibson. Thank you. It's nice to be here. A reasonable place to start any discussion about our relationships with drug companies is our own relationship. Uh, do you have any disclosures for us, Dr. Gibson? Yes, I do. And I agree with you. This is an important thing to have right up front. I am on the Speakers Bureau for three pharmaceutical companies. I do primarily marketing talks for those companies and derive, um, at latest count, about a little bit over 8% of my total income from uh, that activity. Great. Thank you. And I'm on the speaker's board and have consulting relationships and research grants with several companies myself. So why is this such a hot topic? It seems like more and more uh, this is on the table at our last American Psychiatric Association meeting. One of the biggest events of the entire week was a symposium on this topic. Why? Well, that's absolutely right. This has been increasing in both the public view and uh, within the profession. I think a lot of the recent attention was driven by a series of exposés, really, in major newspapers uh, around the country over the last 10 or 15 years that caught the attention of the public. When the public was made aware of some of the marketing practices, of the responses of physicians to some of those practices, there was a real feeling of, of having been betrayed, of something that had been seen as a trust, the medical profession seen as, as a public trust, had been compromised in some way. And once the public got on board with this, the drug companies weren't far behind. Uh, they are, of course, commercial entities and so exquisitely sensitive to market forces. The FDA got on board because as a public entity, it needs to uh, reflect public sensibilities and legal requirements as well. So uh, in the midst of all of that, I think there's been a lot of, uh, a lot of attention, a lot of discussion. Your initial comment that... You know, few things could get a room full of doctors talking more than this, and often quite heated discussions. Feelings run very high on this topic. And possibly it's because, uh, even though we're loath to admit it, there's a lot of money involved here, and a lot of money that we're receiving. And that makes it a very sensitive topic. Pharmaceutical samples that we keep in our offices or our hospitals, what can you tell us about that? Well, it's one of the most interesting topics and one of the most difficult topics to address because the data that are available on samples are decidedly mixed. There are clearly good and bad aspects to having samples. On the positive side, one of the primary factors that physicians use in making decisions about medications is whether or not they're familiar with a medication. Physicians don't like to prescribe a medicine for the first time, and not unreasonably. We like doing things that we've been taught to do, that we have experience doing. Clinical experience is the number one factor physicians cite in making decisions. And if you don't have any clinical experience, then you really don't want to go there. And samples are a way to get the physician 
to have perhaps a slightly lower threshold for trying a medicine than they would have otherwise. So that everybody wins in theory. The patient gets a free uh, medication, the physician gets experience using the medication, and of course the pharmaceutical company, if, if the medication works and both the patient and the, and the physician like it, then there'll be new prescriptions for that medicine that are written that will result in greater sales for the, for the company. The downside is that the presence of a free sample might induce a physician to give a drug to a patient that has no discernible benefit over other drugs with which the physician is more familiar, and most significantly, that would cost a lot less. About three-quarters of the drugs that receive FDA approval in this country in any given year are not significantly better than existing drugs. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing. There are times when drugs look a lot alike when approval is given, and after years of, of use of those drugs, they turn out not to be so similar as we thought. And competition tends to be a good thing and drive prices down. But if you're an insurance company, if you're a patient paying out of pocket, you don't want to be paying more for a drug that doesn't do any more. And that's really where the controversy over samples originates. Well, it seems like most physicians' practices, it's all or nothing, that you either have samples for everything or they refuse any samples. It's true. A lot of physicians will come up with a personal policy on this issue and either accept the samples or not accept the samples. In psychiatry, probably the single biggest reason given by physicians for accepting samples is to provide them to low-income patients who are underinsured but are, don't qualify for public assistance programs. And we know there's a lot of those patients out there where they use the samples to provide a constant supply of medications. It's not going to be just a one-time provision of medications. And the drug companies know this goes on and haven't really objected to it. But for some physicians, this is, this is a high priority. For others, you know, they really don't want to get kind of sucked into the whole marketing approach to things, and so they don't go near samples. And I think either of those is a defensible approach. The really important thing is to keep a careful eye on your use of the medication, to perhaps even use peer review to examine how you're using the medication, to make sure that you're making rational decisions and that you're not being swayed too much in, toward using the more expensive medicines unnecessarily. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is the Director of Psychiatry Residency Education at the University of Michigan, Dr. Michael Gibson. We are discussing physician and drug company interactions. You know, one thing that I've heard in the past, too, is some unscrupulous physicians have actually taken the samples out of their sampling materials repackage them and then sell them to patients. I actually haven't run into any cases of that. I don't doubt that it happens, but it would be, you know, a clear ethical violation and it's something that could potentially occur. I think it's probably rare enough that that wouldn't be a compelling reason for us to do away with the samples compared with some of these other reasons. Well, let's move on and talk about trivial gifts. You know, certainly long are gone are the days where we've got uh, expensive golf clubs and things like that, and now it's pens and Post-it notes. What do you think about that? It's an interesting topic, and one that's more than a little disturbing, actually, when you look at the data on it. On the face of it, it seems perfectly innocent. I don't think any of us would have somebody present us a $1.49 pen and think, gosh, I'm so beholden to these folks, I'm going to begin writing these very expensive prescriptions because uh, I couldn't have afforded that pen otherwise. And the reason that the pharmaceutical folks say that they give out the pads and the, and the pens is so that the name of the drug is out there. 
And that's actually a legitimate marketing approach. One of the reasons that physicians don't prescribe a wider range of medicines is simply that they don't think of them. And the goal of, of a lot of the marketing here is just to get people to at least once in the conversation with the patient have the name of their drug pass through their mind so it could be considered on par with the other drugs that the physician generally uses. The problem is that there's a consistent, it's a small but consistent body of data that shows that even trivial gifts have an impact on physician practice, and that impact is generally not visible to the physician. And that's the critical thing. There's a, a large social science literature, fascinating social science literature on what's called self-serving bias. It's all about seeing things in a way that is most beneficial to you. And relatively small things will tip the scale in that direction. I noticed this when I was an elementary school student. It was my very first uh, social science observation. I discovered in Sandlot Baseball that all runners at first base appeared to be safe when seen from the sideline. But those same runners always looked like they were out when seen from the outfield. And it's self-serving bias. It's each team seeing the, seeing the run come in the way they want to see it. And people weren't being dishonest. They really did see it that way. And what happens with the gifts, what happens uh, with those of us who do contract work for the pharmaceutical industry, is that a gradual bias is introduced with a, a favorable impression, a favorable view of a particular product that's irrational. And, and it's not visible to us. We don't see it happening. And it takes some way of stepping out of that to be able to regain one's objectivity. And there are only two things that have been proven to be effective. Do it. One is to eliminate the, that factor, to just stop the gifts altogether, to not accept any of them just as a matter of course. There's another way, actually, that's, that's used a lot in the business world, and that is to do role-playing, to take on the opposite role of yours. And in this case, it would be the it could be instead of the physician role, the patient role or the insurance company role or the regulatory role, just one of those, and ask, you know, what do you think about this decision? And, and force us as physicians to think through that. And that's actually a fairly effective way of looking at a different self-serving bias. And then when you see that contrast, it's a starting point to being able to retain our objectivity. We've been talking today with Dr. Michael Gibson about an, an ethical framework for physician and pharmaceutical industry interactions. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.